I would say the thing that stands out, probably to all of us, I feel like the Lord is just so good and kind to us um, to impress on all of us uh, who were able to go, was the subject of the sinfulness of sin. And that is a subject that uh, this summer, I just was like, this is what we're going to talk about um, whenever I have a chance to teach, and so here we go. So junior high camp, uh, we talked about that, and then uh, that was a, a few weeks ago now, uh, and then this past weekend, um, I made some tweaks and adjustments, and so um, coming back, I was thinking, you know, I have two weeks here with you guys this morning and next week, so... Um, uh, just looking at what the Lord would have me to speak on, I was like, I want to bring this in to you, um, to talk with you, uh, the adults, the rest, the children, uh, about this topic of sin. And so the next two weeks, uh, today and, and next week, will almost really be a biblical lesson of sin and uh, what it is, how it functions, and where it goes because of who Christ is. And so we, we, uh, we get an opportunity to look at the subject of the sinfulness of sin, and I'm not sure that I already... Uh, did any pictures flash behind me when I was talking? No? Yeah? Okay, so some did. Okay. Um, I have a clicker. I'm not using it, but <laughs> I will now. Um, so they're, they're on it. Good job. All right, so this subject uh, is an important one because I think it's not getting enough airtime. It's neglected in our culture for sure, but it's also being neglected in the church. And I came across a quote as to why that might be. And uh, that is um, in a book that our Mighty Men program are going through. Um, tiny little book called Biblical Doctrine by MacArthur and Mayhew. When it takes MacArthur and somebody else to write a book, it's not tiny. It just gets huge. Um, but there's a section in there on sin uh, where he describes um, a quote here about uh, how sin has been downplayed. He says, Throughout history... Societies have consistently acknowledged man's natural sinfulness. Since the Enlightenment, however, Western civilization has become increasingly antagonistic to the reality of sin, especially as it is defined biblically. There are four maiden reasons for this change. First, modernity, uh, or an age of um, uh, modern age, uh, tends to view human beings as naturally good, naturally good, good at the core. It didn't always used to be this way. Before that age, um, there was not an acceptance of that. That was actually rejected, and it was not popular to believe that. But with the coming of the modern era, though, the traditional view of man's sinfulness began to wane, and man was viewed as inherently good. Human problems and suffering were linked to ignorance. In the false euphoria of the Enlightenment, many concluded from the advances in education science, technology, that man was inherently good, and that as he was educated, the world would in fact get better. The 20th century clearly obliterated that illusion, and man's depravity was put on display as the world exploded with the largest scale of warfare, bloodshed uh, in history, including two devastating world wars, the Holocaust the Cold War, and as you go in history, pass that up until today, you have so many more things. Second reason why sin is being downplayed. Second, he says, deterministic views of humanity have challenged the biblical understanding of sin. People are viewed primarily as products of their environment. That's where the word deterministic comes into play. Uh, your environment determines who you are and how you will be. That's how that word's used. <clears throat> And so, it says, people are viewed as primarily as products of their environment, their social upbringing. Oh, I have daddy issues, or this is how I was raised, or I went without this, right? Psychological drives or deprivations. Society has gone so far in accommodating its own depravity that it is reluctant to hold anyone morally culpable for almost any behavior. Any behavior that could be considered wrong is excused or explained as you're a victim to a circumstance or a setting uh, that's beyond you, outside of you, and that shouldn't be your fault. Third, with the rise of postmodernism, <clears throat> our society has shifted toward moral relativism. We talked quite a bit about that this morning in Equipping Hour and uh, have been learning about that with where we're at today with the wokeness culture, but... Today, right and wrong, good and evil, are not defined in absolute terms, but are viewed subjectively. 
individuals and societies, not God, are seen as having the authority to determine what is wrong. Fourth, and finally, sin is an unpleasant subject. I know that's really true of all of us thinking about that. In our age of self-esteem and subjectivity, people do not like to think of themselves as evil. Millard Erickson notes, to speak of humans as sinners is almost like screaming out profanity or obscenity at a very formal, dignified, genteel meeting or even at church. If you were to yell out a curse word at the top of your lungs right now, and everybody would be appalled because that, oh, you can't curse here. This is God's house. Have you heard people say that before? Uh, well, talking about sin now is almost like, oh, I feel like you just cussed. I feel like you just was swearing so brazenly and so boldly to, to talk about sin. And you're like, wow, did he do that here? That's sad that that's the case. He, uh, Millard Erickson continues. He says, it is forbidden. This general attitude is almost a new type of legalism the major prohibition of which is you shall not speak anything negative. You shall not speak anything negative. That is the mantra today. That is really what uh, most of the people in the world and sadly in the church are coming to land on and agree on. And there could be some reasons uh, that we you know, don't want to take all credit away from churches that are larger or people are trying to do a good work and, and doing evangelism and um, you know, they might have the right motive but then end up kind of just going in, in a wrong direction in their method because they're not guided by the Scriptures. Well, what we want to do is be faithful to the Scriptures. <clears throat> and this week and next week, we'll be talking about the sinfulness of sin. We'll be examining three major aspects of sin. We need to do it uh, this way, break it down. Uh, talking about uh, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. You've probably heard those terms used that way before. Preachers get up and say, uh, Jesus saved us from the power of sin and the presence of sin, and one day the very presence, or I said it backwards, yeah, I said it wrong, penalty of sin, power of sin, and one day the very presence of sin. I've heard that before. I'm like, ah, that preaches, three Ps, cool. Uh, Let's open that up. (laughs) Let's get into that and find out how Jesus does in fact save us from sin all the way, all the way from beginning to end. If you think of the beginning of Jesus' life, who is He? What has He come to do? You have in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, uh, Joseph is sleeping. An angel tells Joseph, she, speaking of Mary, his betrothed, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And you're like, that's who Jesus is from the very beginning. Someone who has come in to take care of the sin problem. He's a great Savior, but He doesn't just save us from circumstances, from fears, or I need to just, you know, think more of myself. That's the real problem. Jesus helps me be more prosperous or these things. No. Jesus has come to target a problem and to save a people who are lost, and they're lost in their sins, and that's what He goes after. So when we're looking at this subject, what, what we're going to do is, is, uh, is break it apart and, uh, and look at it in those three different ways. And, and I want to just encourage you at the outset of the morning, uh, you, you really kind of fall into two different categories, generally speaking, as a hearer this morning when we're talking about sin. One, you're coming in this morning not saved and still under the power of sin. The Bible would describe you in a category, whether you want to agree with this or not, or you would reject it or not. But if you are not truly saved, then you are dead to God and you're alive to sin. And so all of your strivings to try to clean your life up or live a better life or, or make more of your life or uh, you know, make changes that you feel like are necessary, they're not going to work. They're going to be behavioral changes at best. And they might help people some at most, but it will never do anything to bring you into eternal life or life where sin is no longer reigning. And so your, your main goal this morning is to figure out how you can become saved, made alive by faith in Christ. Now, if you are someone who is saved this morning, and I'm hoping, assuming somewhat, that the majority of you are truly saved, born again, that means that you are dead to sin and you're alive to God. That means this major transformation has already happened. This means that you have a new master in your life. This means that now your heart has the ability to not just go on as you were programmed from the beginning in sin. 
that you actually have the ability to honor God by walking in righteousness and not in sin. So what's your goal? Your goal is to kind of think about the Bible and the scriptures and go, okay, what is it that God is working on in me to make him more like him? That's it for you. you. You need to think this morning, come out concluding, okay, God, what are you convicting me about? What are you showing me about myself? Now that I'm alive to you, I'm responsive to your Holy Spirit, I hear the word and I accept it as true and it confronts me in these areas of sin. And I want to grow to put on righteousness in sin's place. Holy Spirit, help me to do that. just want to acknowledge that up front. Wherever you're sitting, this is between you and God and hopefully we'll not just stay there, but we'll come out and we'll grow and turn into either life from death or growth in life. Now, let me give you a quick introduction of the definition of sin. So I'm breaking up a three-part series in two weeks. That's hard math, okay? So I'm just picking the first one for this morning and give an introduction to sin and give you a definition of sin, and we'll cover the first P this morning, the penalty of sin. Next week, we'll look at the power of sin and the presence of sin. Hopefully you're tracking with me. So let me talk uh, for uh, a minute here first about the definition of sin. Maybe I'll have to have some help clicking at the back. Everybody see something? Hey, I see something. That monitor is teasing me. Okay, so uh, here we go. First of all, let's look at um, uh, the topic of sin and give a definition here. Okay, so if you're looking at the Old Testament, you're dealing with biblical Hebrew. That's what it was written in first, and that word for sin, S-I-N in English, uh, would be kata, kata. And in the New Testament, written in Greek, uh, you would find the word for sin, S-I-N, in uh, Greek would be hamartia, hamartia. All right, and in theology, when we study the subject of sin, we call it hamartiology. It's the study of sin. Kind of uses that Greek word, or maybe kind of came into Latin, but then into our word here. So hamartiology. It literally means in kata, uh, even hamartia. Okay, those those original words means to miss the mark. You've probably heard this before, and there's an excellent illustration to know about how to miss the mark, and that's what sin does. This Judges chapter 20, verse 16, it gives a helpful military kind of marksman illustration. Judges 20, 16 says, Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So some of you who came in this morning with a bad hair day, and I was going to try to help you out. If I was one of these guys holding the sling in the rock, I was one of those 700 men gifted by God to be able to not miss the mark, I could help you with your hair day. Uh, and I would not miss. You would not have to, sh- you know, don't hit me. You know, the whole apple on the head thing, right? Like, yeah, right. You know, that never ends up good. <laughs> unless if you're a pro, unless you hit it every time. And that's what Satan is talking about here. It has to do with missing the mark. But these are some sharp shooters right here. The first time you see the word kata come up in the Bible, not the idea of sin, but the first time the word sin is used is in Genesis 4-7 with Cain and Abel. Genesis 4-7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Sin is vicious. It's likened to a beast at the door of your house. It wants to have you, consume you, ravage you, take you apart. Now, if sin wants us to miss the mark so badly, then what's the mark that sin wants us to miss? What does this beast want us to to not see, to not hit? Well, you go into the New Testament, and uh, uh, before you hear is, I think, a very helpful um, target, bullseye verse. It's the hair on the head to hit. The New Testament, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned, there is our word, and fall short of the glory of God. That's the bullseye. That's the center. That's the target, the glory of God. And yet we've fallen short of that, meaning we've missed the mark of that. We are not at the same place that God is with that. So what is the mark we need to hit? Well, according to this verse, it's moral perfection. It's complete separation from sin. It's holiness. 
It's holiness. God is holy, holy, holy. He hits the mark every time. Boom, boom, boom. Splitting the backs of the arrows every time. He never misses. So holiness that brings glory to God is the bullseye. Here are some uh, quick, uh, short definitions as well. Wayne Grudem, he says, any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. I think those are helpful words to observe. Act, our actions, attitudes, internally what's going on in the heart, in our nature, from the very beginning before even there were actions or attitudes. There's a sinful nature. John MacArthur says that any lack of conformity to God's will in attitude, thought, or actions, they're probably reading the same book, huh? Uh, Whether committed actively or passively, uh, very helpful. Uh, Another uh, helpful definition, uh, John Piper, he says, so my definition of sinning is, sinning is any feeling or thought or speech or action that comes from a heart that does not treasure God over all other things. And the bottom of sin, the root of all sinning, is such a heart, a heart that prefers anything above God, a heart that does not treasure God over all other persons and all other things, or as I once tried to express it in a message years ago, Piper says, what is sin? Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized the person of God, not loved. Love is against God at its very foundation. And finally, you just have a very short and brief definition from John in 1 John 3, 4. Sin is lawlessness. This just gives us a better idea of what's at the bullseye. Lawlessness, breaking the law, the law of God, that is. So Israel had over 600 laws in the Old Testament just for them. And in the New Testament, we have the law of Christ given to us uh, from Christ himself and his apostles and prophets as they were given authority to give us commands about how we should operate, how we should live. But all of those laws can be summed up by the greatest commandment, which is in Mark 12, 30. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So in other words, love for God. And then he goes on to say, to love your neighbor as yourself in the next verse, and a love for others is the mark. So if you were to be someone who doesn't break the law, you will keep the law. And keeping the law is summed up by the greatest commandment, to love God more than anything else with all of you and that is in you, and to love those who are around you, your neighbor, as you would love yourself. Very naturally, very sacrificially, very quickly, very completely. So when we do not love God or others like we should, then we miss the mark, we sin, we break God's law, and we fall short of God's glory. Now, let's get into our first key passage that I want to open up with you, and that's in Genesis chapter 3. So go back to the beginning with me to look at the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin. Don't be scared. It's just a picture of a snake, not a real snake. All right, so Genesis chapter 3 is where we'll be looking at. As you look at chapters in the Bible, Genesis 3 looms tall in the chapters of the Bible. It is so big. You need to know its significance. If I told you what is Genesis chapter 3 about, you should be able to tell me this is about the fall. So when I say the fall, you say Genesis 3, right? The fall. Yeah, there you go. Your call and response. I like it. All right, and we're going to break it down in three ways. I'm really, like, happy with threes these days, so I'm going to just keep going this way. Okay, three ways we're going to break down this chapter and look at the penalty of sin and kind of that first sin, that, that one sin. And the first thing that I want to show you about how God is going to rescue us from sin is the origin of sin. The origin of sin. Let's talk about where sin came from. 
That's a good place to start. And if you're looking around in Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and you go, well, the fall was in, was in Genesis 3. You just told me that. So is this the origin? Well, actually, if you were to use Scripture to compare to Scripture, you'll find that there's actually a time before the fall of mankind where sin came in before. Before. That's why I'm calling it the satanic origin of sin. We need to talk about Satan. So just look, first of all, at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Before we talk about the fall, we need to introduce this character and understand where he came from, slithering on his way. Well, first of all, what we need to do is look back at God creating. God creates in chapter 1 the heavens and the earth. He's forming things and he's filling them with things that are good. At the end of each day, he says, let this be done and it is done so. And afterwards, he says, it is good. It is good. It is good. Then you have chapter 1, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made. This is the summary. It is good. And he says something a little bit fuller. He says, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. As you know, the seventh day he didn't create. He rested And so after God had created everything in heaven and earth, it was all created very good. So we need to know that from the beginning, that God is our creator and he creates all things to reflect himself, and that is good. But one thing that God created, this figure that has slithered onto the scene here, has an evil background, that something after all things were created very good went corrupt. I mean, you look at a a sketch of this character. Um, you, you look at verse 1, and you see that it is a serpent, crafty serpent, uh, like the beasts of the field, but more crafty than all of them, and made by God. So that's some of the information you have right there. But if you were just to limit it right there, you go, okay, interesting, a snake, crafty snake, created by God. All right, what's, what's odd about that? As we will read, you'll find out the snake starts talking. As you'll find out, the snake's not just talking, but he has some intent. And he's intent on getting Adam and Eve created in God's image to reflect his glory well and hit the mark every time to miss the mark. And you're going, okay, well, we need to learn more about this serpent then. Well, thankfully, we have Scripture that we can interpret Scripture with. Uh, John, the uh, uh, Gospel of John in chapter 8, Jesus talks to the Pharisees and he mentions this character. John 8, 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. So here he is using one of those terms from the beginning, way back in time at creation, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So kind of an originator of lies. So we're learning a little bit more about him. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, uh, Paul says, But I am afraid that as the serpent, the serpent, there is a singular serpent, he's talking about deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So the, the serpent went on continuing to deceive and was even during the church age able to in some form or another distract and divide and cause the church to be deceived like Eve was. And then you've got Revelation 12, 9, and I think also 20, verse 2, that repeats the same phrase here about him. But Revelation 12, 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. There it is. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So whether Satan is empowering or embodying this serpent, it's not revealed, but Satan's whole mode of operation is to masquerade as an angel of light. That's what 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen says. And he's going around tricking, deceiving people to get them to fall. He's spreading lies because he's been lying from the beginning, and he's a murderer because he's only leading people into death, spiritual death and separation. Uh, He's a deceiver, so he works in the mind, and we know that, and he's an ancient serpent, so we know it's been going on from the very beginning. 
So we learn a lot about this crafty little serpent. This is Satan's disguise, if you want to call it that. Satan himself, not an equal being to God. Sometimes we tend to think that there's, there's God and there's Satan. Uh, there's right and there's wrong. There's this epic battle. It's like white and black, yin and yang, you know, this balance of dualism or something like that. And, uh, and, and we're just kind of waiting for it to just kind of eventually one day tip the scales and, and good wins. And we're all so happy, right? Well, that's not the way the Bible talks about Satan. He is not an equal foe to God. He doesn't have the same power. He doesn't have the same knowledge. He wasn't, he wasn't an eternal being like God. He was a created being. He was created by God. So don't get the wrong perspective of right and wrong in its origin. It's not on equal terms as if they are equal teams on the battlefield. Right, what I want to do now is give you a little bit more information about what went wrong uh, from when everything was made good, very good, to then now having this serpent with the reputation that he has of being a deceiver from the beginning. Uh, the first passage I'm going to turn to is in uh, Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28. You might kind of think, well, that's like way, almost like past the middle of the Bible. How's that going to tell us something that's like before uh, time or the beginning of time here? Well, um, you've got Ezekiel talking to and giving revelation to um, uh, the the king of Tyre. I'm looking at Ezekiel 28, verse 12. And he's giving him a warning from God because this king of Tyre has been standing against and hurting the people of God. You don't want to do that to God's people. And this king of Tyre, which is a, um, not a tire shop, uh, but that's a place right up north of, of Israel. Okay, so the king of Tyre was someone uh, who God is just totally opposed to. Now, what he's going to start to say about this human king is an actual prophecy against him, but he talks about how he's like Satan. And he's going to start to say things that you're kind of going, wait, did he just kind of like maybe step back for a sec second spiritually and start to talk about the satanic origin of, of Satan himself behind even maybe a man like this? Let me read just a couple of verses to you. probably heard them before. I know Ken has mentioned it even in our time being here. But Ezekiel 28, verse 12, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Just even pausing there, all of a sudden, you just kind of know, wow, there's a reference to Eden this seems like somewhat intentional to cause our minds to think about who else was in the Garden of Eden. Not many were welcome there after Adam and Eve fell, right? And you see that there was a signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect beauty. So whoever this was, was at first perfect, perfection, beautiful. In fact, probably perfect in beauty, uh, a, a very beautiful being there in the Garden of God. Down a little bit further uh, in verse 13 at the end. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. So this is a created being. That fits. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Okay, now we're talking a little bit more using angel terms. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. This is talking about a very high place in, in heaven itself. You were blameless in your ways. Past tense, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till, verse 15, till unrighteousness was found in you. This is the origin of evil as far back as I can trace it. I like to play dominoes and watching dominoes fall. I mean, there's a game dominoes, but then also knocking dominoes over, right? But you want to go find out that first domino? Uh, here, here's where it fell, the first click of the dominoes. You were blameless until unrighteousness was found in you. In you. That's where sin came from, the inside of Satan, one of the most beautiful angels and so you want to add to that and look a little deeper into this. Look at verse 17, Ezekiel 28, 17. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. 
You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. He noticed how beautiful he was. He looked at himself, as it were, in a mirror, and it was like, I am the most beautiful. I am the highest of the angels. I I do look good. You know what started to go to his head? That he was worthy of the same worship as God. He started to believe for a moment that he was worthy of worship that only God is worthy of. And that's what pride does. Pride in all of us can cause us to think such absurd things that if I was created to worship God and be an angelic being, that pride would come into my heart and give me that thought for a moment to go, I wonder if I'm as good as God. I wonder if I'm as beautiful as Him. And you know what? We can think that way too sometimes. It is so foolish, but we can think that way. Let me add a little bit and uh, give you a little bit of a, a mathematic correlation here. But Isaiah 14, which is what of 28? It's half. Uh, so Isaiah 14 uh, is a, just this is a helpful way to kind of remember these two passages. If you're kind of searching and looking, going, okay, where was that Kyle was talking about? Origin of sin, where kind of Satan fell. Okay, Ezekiel 28 and then half, half that number, 14, but in Isaiah So another very similar situation, talking about someone who is doing satanic-like things to the people of God, and listen to the words that are used about him. Isaiah 14 and verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Listen to this, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I will make myself like the most high. And this is, I believe, affirming and also referring to the fall of Satan. Now, we don't know exactly when this fall happened. Um, the Genesis 1 and 2 and even 3 don't really indicate when this happened. We know it happened after everything that was created that was good on the sixth day and before chapter 3, uh, where now this crafty serpent comes into the scene. We have a little bit more of uh, information now about who is approaching God's people, and now we get to look at the next aspect of this chapter here, okay? So the the satanic origin of sin, and now let's look at the innate nature of sin. We just need to understand how sin works. This passage helps you not only understand the first sin, human sin, but it's going to help you understand every other sin that follows it because it has an innate nature to be this way. This is how it worked in the beginning. This is kind of the DNA of sin. This is the pattern that's repeated of sin. It is it is ongoing. So you can learn a lot from this first sin, and I want you to lean in, listen to uh, these next few verses. I'm going to pick up in halfway through verse 1 to verse 7. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Let's back up here and start to look at what happened. What happened at this first sin? There really is a strategy here that Satan uses that is very similar to the way that he fell. I want you guys to make this connection. Think about some of the verses that we read in Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. Notice how he looked at himself and what he thought he was worthy of. And he looked at God and knew what he was worthy of, but thought for a moment in pride that I could actually ascend that high. I could be like him. I'm worthy of it. 
And then unrighteousness was found in him, in the heart, which then led to a kicking out of heaven. And you're going to see where this takes Adam and Eve in a similar kicking out. So let's look at the strategy here. Uh, It's the same strategy he always used. He's been deceiving people from the beginning, right? Satan's strategy for sin. What does he do at first? Well, Satan acts like he's actually on our side. Look at verse 1. Second part, he said to the woman, first of all, a little odd that he's speaking to the woman, but then, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Uh, For a moment, it's almost kind of like this satanic creature, whether they understand how much of that influence is actually going on or not, is coming alongside of them and then pointing the finger over at God saying, let's put God, you know, underneath our analysis right now. Let's just kind of, let's just kind of review what did he actually say? I'm almost kind of like coming up alongside of you, making you feel like Satan almost is actually most concerned about our well-being. This is just like, uh, this is scary. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's almost like he's like, I'm looking out for you. Wait, did he say you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden? Like, that sounds rough. You got a bummer deal. He created you, created all these beautiful things. And he's like, now you can't eat all this stuff? And, and for a moment, you're kind of like, huh, yeah, well, yeah, tell me more, right? You know, you've got this kind of moment where Satan just kind of sliding right in. Now, not only Satan doing that, but that, that's like today too, right? Satan enticing us to think that sin could actually be for our well-being. I'm missing something. I, I need this. Satan's like, yes, <laughs> they're listening to me like I'm their friend. I'm their loyal one. When really that's not true. The world will do the same. Listen to the world. It lures us in, telling us things that we need to have or things that we're missing out on and making us think, oh, well, that's the good life. That's the party life. That's the fun life. I'm missing out. Uh, The world seems like they have our best interest in mind. And so we give them our ear thinking they love me. They want me to be around. When in in reality, the blood that they're waiting for in others actually will, will be your own blood. The traps that they're laying for others in the world, you'll fall into. The money that they're going to find that's easy, that comes from attacking weak people, will not go to you and be split among the spoil of friends. You'll be trapped. You'll be left penniless by the world. And our flesh does it too. Our flesh does it too. We start to rationalize and think and go, well, this thing, you know, I I think this is best for me. I'm listening to me. I'm doing what my doctors told me to do. You know, I think that this is best for me. And we start to rationalize in our own heart, which is depraved and fallen, to start to think that these things are best for us. And we start to give an ear to temptation. And so it creeps in. Well, the next thing that you kind of just, let's stay on this verse for a second. He casts doubt on God's word, doesn't he? So, so he's, he's saying to the woman, did God actually say? Well, let's think about what God actually said, right? Go back to chapter 2 with me. Chapter 2. In verse 15, we see that God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Pretty good job. Okay, then 16, the Lord God commanded. There's a commandment of God, a commandment of God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Let me just pause right there. That already sounds totally opposite of what Satan's leading them to believe. Okay, so he says, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he provides abundant provision for them. He gives them a paradise and says they can have it all. But then he says there's one thing that, you're, that, is not, that you can't handle. And so stay away from this. He's protecting them. He's providing and protecting. If you were to look at it that angle. But Satan doesn't want to look at it from that angle. He wants to look like you're hiding something. And you're prohibiting you from something. And so when Satan comes in to tempt and to get us to sin... Listen loud and clear. What does Satan attack? He attacks the Word of God. 
He goes right at it and goes, okay, I know that God has revealed his will to his people. I'm going to try to get in there and just kind of get my tentacles around it and try to turn it and pivot it to where they can start to look at that and go, whoa, this is, this is not right for me. This is something that actually is dangerous for me to believe. I believe these thoughts rather than those thoughts. If Satan wants the church in our day and age to fall into sin, Satan is going to attack where the word is. He's going to attack our counseling ministry and say, don't lean on the Bible to help people with their problems. That's not enough. You need more. And you're like, oh, wait, that's, that's dangerously close to what Satan did in the beginning. Now, don't preach these sermons that are so sharp and talk to us about sin. Nobody wants to hear anything that's negative. So find something else to talk about. Share with us stories. Stories are, oh, I'm so riveted when you share stories. Just tell about your life. It connects to my life. You know, and then suddenly we get off the path of God's word to where now we're not thinking about God's word very well. And Satan's loving it. He's loving it. If he had a pry bar, he would jab it right into the truth and just pry your mind out of the truth. And he would start to just wedge lies right in there in between and get you to think ways that are not true. And you might think that they're true. You might think for a moment that God is wrong and Satan is right. So he casts doubt on God's word. That's where he attacks. And it's true with us as well. What else does he do? He slightly changes God's word. Notice verse 1, the second part. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, he didn't actually say that. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what he said. He actually takes what God said positively. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but not of the tree of good and evil. And he, and he takes the positive and he turns it negative. He flips it. He makes it seem like you're kept from something, can't have something, rather than you can have something. So again, he's attacking God's word, he's casting doubt on God's word, and he's just ever so slightly changing it, just twisting it. So you start to think, well, no, we're talking about truth here, but you know what? I haven't considered that, but you know what? Did he actually say that? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. This is where we start to go dangerously wrong with our lives. We want to sin, and we look at Scripture, we feel like it prohibits us, and so what do we do? We just find another way to rationalize. We find another verse that seems to kind of make that verse just not seem so sharp to us. We'd look at for another interpretation, maybe of a passage that gets us a little bit more flexibility in our sin. You know what? We just stay out of the Bible altogether. Because when we're in there, we just feel convicted. We're like, you know what? No. I don't want these things. I'm fine with the verse of the day just pulled out of context and thrown at me to make me feel good, you know? And that's what I want to do. That's how I want to live. Satan's like, yes, get out of the Bible. Get out of there. It's too hard for me when your mind is in the Bible. I can't deceive you. The truth is brighter. He wants to deceive. He wants you to not see something of the glory of God. And we crack just the door ever so slightly to sin and sinful thoughts, and they fit right almost in between the white space of the pages of Scripture and where the words are at. And Satan just got his pry bar, and they're just, words, words. We need to fight for the tight spaces of truth to not let anything get in there because that's where he's going. And he's fighting in the mind. He's fighting in the mind. Your, your family is struggling. Your job is so difficult, and the people you work with, your health, you don't even want to talk about. You're struggling in life. But at the very beginning, and through it all, and at the very end, it is a battle of the mind, how you think about your health, how you think about your home, how you think about your work. It's not change circumstances. It's not just work on behavioral changes. No, you can dress up a corpse, make it look alive. That's not going to help. We need to do the work that's internal, where the truth goes into the heart. Satan's there with his pry bar. And notice as well, he appeals to our sense of freedom. It's almost kind of like he's saying, look, you aren't free to eat of all these trees. 
Look at, look at God limiting your freedom. And you're like, for a minute, you're like, hey, you know what? Yeah, you're right. He put me here in the garden. He gave me all these wonderful things. Why can't I have them? It's like he appeals to our sense of freedom. And that's still going on in our minds, in our hearts, where wherever we rationalize our sin, we're almost always making it about how we should be free to do this or do that or do this. Why is God trying to fence me in from the things that I want? Why doesn't God want me to have sex before marriage? Why doesn't God want me to relax by using drugs? Why doesn't God want me to have fun drinking at parties and going too far? Why doesn't God want me to control my wife and my children with harsh speech? Why doesn't God want me to have peace just by avoiding all difficult people? Why doesn't God want me to have comfort when I just want to be in front of the screens? Why doesn't God want me to feel pleasure through a little overeating? Why doesn't God want me to be the gender I identify with more? Right? All these questions, we're almost thinking like God is keeping something back from us that is really truly good for us when that's the lie that we're believing. And we have to be very careful that those lies don't start to convince us that now we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, like Romans 1 says. Well, he gets Eve like mentally stumbling back, almost like losing her footing with her sound, biblical, theological thinking about the very clear command that God gave her and the man. And then he, he gives the fatal blow and stabs with the sword. She answers back, the woman said to the serpent, and what she said, she's kind of trying to rationalize it, stumbling in her thoughts there. Then verse 4, here comes the sword thrust. He's got her off her balance and then he plants the lie in the mind. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. This is just a brazen lie. But Satan's crafty. He doesn't just start with a lie. He doesn't walk up to you and say, Hey, do you want to have some of this? It'll be really good. You're like, Yeah. See ya, snake. You know, we wouldn't give in to it, right? But you just kind of weaken and soften your mind for a while. You just kind of go dull and numb for a little while. You just kind of just like let Scripture just be muted in your head for a while. You just kind of tell your conscience, stop firing off and telling me that I'm wrong for a while. Oh, a lie can come right in there and just settle in and bring all kinds of sin. And this is what happens. She's been softened by wrong thinking. And now here comes that sword thrust in that obvious open area where there needs to be armor. And Satan found the hole and stabs. He plants the lie in our minds and he makes God look suspicious. Or as young people say, God is sus. That's a shorthand. Okay, so look at verse 5. It says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. He's almost kind of like saying, nah, hey, here's the deal. God knows something. If you eat of this, you'll be like him. He doesn't like having a rival. God knows this. And you're kind of like, huh? Wait a minute. Wait, I can be like God. Okay, time out. Divinity is not something for Satan to be able to give out. That's not in his, his, his ability. He was never given that ability to do that. And you know what sin does? It always promises something that it can't deliver. It always promises something that it can't deliver. And that, that's the final kind of piece of, of the, the pie or the strategy here is that he promises what he can't provide. Still, verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Partial truth. That is true. Your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, Satan working with partial truths, but, but there's lies in there too. You won't be like God as far as equal to God, but you'll be like God in, in, in knowing good and evil. 
So a man is left here struggling to know who's telling the truth. It's a truth war. Satan using these half-truths to get in so that sin can be there. Now, God knows evil, but not experientially, not from his heart. But he knows it fully. God wants us to be like him, but not having his power, his sovereignty, his position as God, but to walk in righteousness and holiness and to be imitators of God. Yes, those things he does desire for us. So just know that when there is temptation for you to sin, Satan is almost promising you can have something that he can't actually offer to you. If you just take this, you will feel better. If you just don't do this, life will be better. And then what happens? You either take or don't do, disobey, then afterwards you don't actually get what you thought you would get. Verse 6 is the actual sin deed. When the mind is conditioned with lies and deceit, sin is so easy. Sin is so easy. So the woman saw the tree was good for food. She was like, now that Satan's been pointing my attention to it, I'm looking at it. Almost like salivating for it. And that's what we do when we look at sin. We start to salivate over it. I want this. She starts to almost covet that which is not hers. It was a delight to the eyes. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. So I want to be wise. I want to be like God. She took of its fruit and ate. There's the first human sin. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So just know that when you partake in sin, it doesn't just affect you and your life. It, it suddenly becomes something that is on the platter. You're holding out to others around you. Here, I tried some of this. You too. Try. Like, Great. Now the, the sweet taste that I wanted in my mouth is bitter. And this person who is dear to me, I want them to have the sweet taste as well. But now they're tasting bitter. Sin works that way. Sin goes that way. In verse 7, sin brings shame. The eyes of both were opened. Satan was telling the truth. And they knew that they were naked, so they started to realize, wait, what? What, what, what are we noticing? What's wrong? And they, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They, they start to do what? They start to cover themselves. That's what happens when you sin. The first thing you think about after you sin is, oh, no, God knows everything. He's coming for me. He totally saw that. How, what can I do to hide? Right? And sometimes we hide by lying. I did that as a kid all the time. Kyle, did you break that? No, 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 it was Josh across the street. You know, Kyle, did you do that to your brother? No, 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 he said this, right? What am I trying to do? Fig leaves, cover myself. Ah, ooh, cover. It doesn't work that way, though. It doesn't work that way. And yet, that's what we try to do when we self-justify sin or we lean on and depend on our own covering rather than what we'll find later in the Bible to admit we were exposed, we were wrong, and we need God's covering. We need his justification. We need a different form. We can't hide. We need to come clean, and we need to admit what has gone wrong. We'll close with this final point here, the, the noticeable effects of sin. This is the end. I'm just going to summarize a couple of verses here for you to look at. But we've looked at the satanic origin of sin, where it kind of came from, first domino, and where it's still colliding into other dominoes today. We looked at the innate nature of sin and, and what's going on in the DNA of sin. How do we unpack it and look at it and see what's going on there? Now, let's, let's look at how, how many other dominoes are falling and, and how bad this truly is. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves that they are more hiding, right, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They, they took for cover. They ducked. But the Lord starts to engage them in dialogue. He calls to them and says to them, where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? 
The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's just pause there for a second. Look at these noticeable effects of sin, things that are going to come as a result of that one sin happening. The main thing that happens, and we're going to find out this in the next few verses too, is that the earth becomes in a cursed state, a cursed state, and it's characterized by hiding from God, taking cover in our own way, running from Him rather than toward Him, not walking with Him, fearing His presence, all these terrible effects of sin. And this curse is on this perfect creation that is now going to become corrupted and decayed. This means, if I were to kind of unpack it and summarize a little bit of what's to come after this, that mankind hides in guilty shame from a God that they are now separated from. It begins a spiritual warfare between those who are gods and those who are not. It creates painful consequences for childbirth and in the home between a marital union. It makes the ground full of thorns and thistles, complicating all work. It requires the first animals to die so that they could have animal skins covering them, first sacrifices, really. And it kicked man out of the Garden of Eden so man would become unwelcome in God's paradise. So one sin, and it did all of that. You know, it's almost like if we were to just kind of like back it up a little bit and go, okay, what's the big deal if I just have one more of these? What's the big deal if I just have one more look? What's the big deal if I just said this to my girlfriend? What's the big deal if I hit send right now on my phone? What's the big deal if I just didn't do this instead of doing what I know God wants me to do? What's the big deal? Oh, every sin is a big deal. This first and one sin was a big deal. It took a paradise and brought it into a perished state, one that was filled with sickness and death. At this point, because of one sin, everybody who would come from Adam and Eve were going to be dead to God and alive to their sin, loving that more. But we need to notice something as we close, that the penalty of sin, which is death, is not the only effect in the rest of this chapter. Notice the grace. Notice the deliverance. Notice the forgiveness. First of all, in verse 8, the Lord could have immediately scrapped them. When you're working with clay and it doesn't turn out how you want it to, you just smash it and just start mashing it between your palms. You say, I'm starting over. Could have done that with Adam and Eve. You're starting to draw something. It doesn't come out how you want it. What do you do with that piece of paper? It's ruined. The, the, the pencil over it has, you just scrap it, throw it in the trash can, right? He could have totally done that. And he said he would do that, but he didn't do that. He started to talk with and to pursue sinners. We're like, praise God that he doesn't just do that in our own sin, one sin. He could have said, scrap them. I warned them. They broke it. Now death. But there's grace. And the Lord seeks them out in their sin. Where are you? Where are you? He goes to talk with them, to dialogue with them patiently, even though they're giving dumb answers and they're trying to point the finger at other people. And in fact, they're pointing the finger at God. So, well, God, the, the woman who you gave to me, she's the one that gave me the fruit. Kind of like, you tried to give me a helpmate? You gave me a hurtmate. You know, she caused me to sin. It's, and you were the one who gave her to me. Bad design, God. Like, Wow. Okay, now we're getting feisty here. Now we're fighting. Now we're picking a fight with God. Your sin isn't just, oh, I made somebody else sad. No, your sin is, I offended a holy God personally. And it becomes very personal. But look at chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, he curses the serpent first. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity, that is like war. I will put enmity between you and the woman, he says to the snake. 
and between your offspring, so those are all those who listen to the devil, your offspring and her offspring, God's people, God's people. He, one of God's people, shall bruise your head, he says to Satan, and you, he says to Satan, shall bruise his heel. What Genesis 3 does is it doesn't stop in death. That would be a very short Bible. Chapter 1, 2, 3, it's done. Right? No, there's so much more written in the Bible. Chapter 3 isn't the end. It's not surely death. It's abundant grace. It's forgiveness. It's a patient God who walks with his people and strives with them. And he promises that one day the serpent will be stepped on by someone in the process of the serpent being stepped on and crushed, dealt a fatal blow to his head. There will be a bruising of the heel. And so we are left after Genesis 3 watching the Bible looking for this promise to come true. That there's going to come somebody born of Adam and Eve. Someone from their offspring. And it's a singular. And it's a masculine pronoun. So we're looking, Cain, Abel, nope, keep watching. You know, this one, that one, this one, now the kings. Okay, is it this king? That would make sense. No. Okay, is it that king? Looking good and divided. No, is it that king? Huh? And sin still. Okay, no. Maybe it's another time. These prophets speaking ahead. He is to come. He is to come. He is to come. Giving color and and clarity and and picture of what this day and age will be like when he comes. So the whole Bible is a watching and a waiting and a looking for that one. The snake crusher. The one to reverse the curse. The one to give everybody access back into Eden. The one who says, I am the one to give you life when you deserve death. And it will come at a cost. That bruised heel in Genesis 3.15, is referring to Jesus' death on the cross because it was not his final death. No, it pained him. Oh, it pained him. But it pained him so much as a bruised heel that he could recover from through the resurrection. And so he has triumphed. He has triumphed and he is worthy. He is the one who is worthy of all creation. All created people. Here he is, somehow uncreated God in all his fullness, in flesh, come to us to show us how he's going to reverse the curse and start to bring blessing into our lives. It's not us cleaning our lives up. It's not us trying to give, us, give God righteousness that's from us. No, it's us trusting that the one he promised who had come to end it all and bring life is our righteousness. If you're the sinner sitting here this morning in unrepentant sin, feeling stuck like you can't get out, I'm telling you, you can't. But there is a way out. Come to the end of your striving. Stop working to get out. Look to the one who God has sent and he has promised, the one who is worthy, Jesus. He knows how to get you out. But he's not looking for you to strike a bargain with him. He's not looking for you to pay him something of your righteousness. He's looking for you to admit it and say, yep, sinner, fallen, dead to God. Make me alive. That's what you need. And if you're saved here this morning and you know what it's like to have that salvation from sin, Jesus and no other name, that you're saved from your sin. You walk with him. It's like you, in a way, you like, you like remember in these almost like Adam and Eve footsteps, God in the garden, I'm walking, but not by sight. It's by faith right now. And so you're just asking the Lord, Lord, who is with me, go walk through your days, talk with him. By faith, you have access to your God not on the basis of your righteousness, but on the basis of grace, on the basis of the promise and plan of God to save you from your sin. That is a sweet life. Oh, filled with so many pains and so much suffering, but with salvation that just totally surpasses all of that pain and all that suffering. So maybe you'll remember 
the satanic origin of sin, the innate nature of sin, and the noticeable effects of sin. If you were to alliterate, it is sin one. This is the first sin. And the most important thing for you to do this morning is to look ahead. Forgive me, I'm falling apart. <laughs> is to look ahead to your Savior. Don't just look down at your sin. Let me pray. God, thank you so much that you have brought deliverance. Thank you so much that there is a way. Thank you so much for showing us how bad our sin is, how sinful our sin is, how offensive it is to you, how personal it is, how harmful it is. Lord, we believe so many lies. It's so easy for us to do. Sometimes we have a hard time telling the difference between lies and truths. But with your spirit inside of us, with regeneration of our souls to know that we're made alive in Christ in no other way, we can start to tell the difference. We can start to see the change. We can start to tell what life was actually designed to be, to be your image bearers, hitting the mark, living in such a way that involves holiness, that brings glory to you, not walking in our sin, seeking our own glory, which is so vain. So Lord, bring, bring change this morning. Bring new life this morning. But do that alone for your glory because we know that you are worthy. As we continue to understand sin more biblically, help us to, as a church, live in a way that finds salvation in Christ every day. For your glory and your name, amen.